This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Luke 11, and just verses 1 to 2. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. We're going to skip now to back to Matthew 6. Verses 5 to 9. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thank you very much. Okay, brilliant. And so you know how the rest of the prayer goes. It is, of course, the Lord's Prayer. And over the next few weeks, um, we're doing a series called Pray With Jesus, and we'll be looking at each of the different elements of the Lord's Prayer. Now, <clears throat> many of you may have guessed that I'm actually preaching today, mainly because I'm wearing a shirt. I rarely wear a shirt to church unless I am preaching. It's also quite convenient for this little microphone, which can clip on top. It's harder on a T-shirt. But the other reason some of you may have guessed is because it's actually my slot. I don't know if you know this, but this slot each year is my slot, and for the last three years, I've preached in this slot. And the reason, I don't know if you know it's my slot. Do you know it's my slot? Well, we do now. It's my slot. Well, we'll see what happens next year, I guess. But, um, yeah, it's my slot. I know it's my slot because I always tend to preach the day before we go off to New Day. Okay, and there's a whole bunch of us going off to New Day this year, and for those of you who don't know, New Day is a big Christian conference for youth. Okay, so, it's about 7,000 young people from around the country go off to New Day um, during next week, and they get Bible teaching, worship, seminar, gigs, and generally hang around and have a really good time. Now, the build-up to New Day is always quite exciting. It's quite exciting for the kids who are going, but it's also quite exciting for uh, adults going as well, and especially um, those adults who sort of run youth groups and get to take their youth group along. So I've been working with the youth group all through the year, and now they get to take them along to New Day. Okay, um, And um, I'm signed up to the Facebook feed of New Day, and all during this week I've had little video updates of people who lead the event telling us to pray for the event. 
pray for this event, pray for the event, because we're expecting God to do great things. And one of the videos which posted up was um, by a friend of mine, Stuart Gibbs. I worked with Stuart Gibbs about 10 years ago. He was um, a young pastor at the church I was, and I was doing like a volunteer uh, year for, for the church. And we, um, me and Stuart, we ran the youth group. We inherited this youth group of about six to eight young people. They were great fun, but had no interest in God whatsoever. They just really weren't interested in God. Whenever we tried to do some teaching or some Christian activity, they'd just push back on us, but just argue against us. And then, um, you know, they'd come and they'd kind of sort of brag about what they were doing outside of church. And they just weren't living Christian lives. And we, we were struggling, really. We just didn't know what to do with them. So we developed a strategy, and the strategy was we're going to try and get them to come along to this New Day event. And in the weeks building up to the New Day event, we were to take them out of the service, we're going to take them down to a cafe and teach them the gospel. So it was my job um, as, the, as the volunteer to take them out of the service, and I'd prepare a little talk, and I'd take them down to the cafe, buy them a hot chocolate, and sort of do my talk, and then have a discussion on the back of it. It wasn't going very well at all. It wasn't going well at all. So um, they'd turn up and, you know, I'd, I'd give my talk and they'd just fight back or they'd just mess about whilst I was doing my talk. Um, there was one time, I remember in particular, where only two of them bothered to turn up and so I took both of them down. And halfway through my talk, one of the girls just upped and left. Didn't say where she was going, didn't apologise for leaving, just upped and left and went. Okay, so um, our strategy wasn't working. We prayed. We prayed a lot. Um, first answer to prayer was actually they all reluctantly signed up to come away to New Day. So they came away to New Day, and um, the week before New Day, we were praying, um, and we got the parents um, to pray and fast as well. And um, a lot of prayer went into it. And then what was remarkable was that during the course of the year, one by one, each of them gave their lives to Jesus. So they all responded to the gospel and gave their lives to Jesus. Even the girl who up and left during my talk, she left it to the last night, but actually she, she, um, she went down the front and gave her life to Jesus as well. So um, it's remarkable, really. And when we came back, it wasn't just a flash in the pan, you know, big, crazy, crazy week and then back to normal. Actually, when we came back, it was a changed group of people. There were lives changed. We could say we had a Christian youth group rather than just a youth group, okay? And both me and Stuart, um, I saw him at a wedding a few months ago, and we both said, yeah, it was down to prayer. It was down to the prayers um, of the parents of everyone that that, that, that occurred. We'd say that, you know, if we didn't pray, you know, it may not have happened. Okay, so um, the Bible is also full of remarkable stories of answers to prayer. Okay, and it's no surprise actually. Um, I want us to read um, the passage from Luke, and we got the context of the disciples watching Jesus go off to pray. And it's little wonder that the disciples actually asked um, Jesus, "How do you pray?" Because they would have been Jesus, been with Jesus, and seen him do some remarkable things during his like three years of ministry. So they would have been with Jesus when he started to heal the sick. Loads of people came to him and he healed everyone who was sick. Um, they would have been with him when he did his other miracles, so turning water into wine. They would have been with him when he was preaching in the synagogues and teaching around um, Jerusalem as well. And you know, people were hanging on his every word and saying, who is this man who teaches with such authority? Um, some of them were with him when they were in the boat together and there's a big storm and Jesus was sleeping calmly. All the disciples were freaking out. They woke him up and Jesus commanded the wind and the waves to stop, and the wind and waves stopped, and the disciples said, who is this man that even the waves obey him? Okay, so they, through spending time with Jesus, they would have been itching, just itching to know, you know, 
what is his secret? What is his secret? How does he do this? What is the secret to his life? Little wonder they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. And so Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. And many of you will know the Lord's Prayer off by heart. Many of you will know it um, up and down the country pretty much every day. Children as young as four are praying the Lord's Prayer. Okay, we do it pretty much every day in the school I teach you. Um, now, when preparing for the sermon, I came, I read a lot, and I came across a lot of authors who were saying, you know, if you are serious about your Christian faith, if you are serious about your walk with God, you should see some kind of progression in your prayer life. You should see some kind of progression in your prayer life. Um, and for myself, you know, despite seeing some incredible answers to prayer, which I've just shared, despite um, knowing um, some of the Bible and some of the answers to prayer in the Bible and hearing other people's testimony of prayer, I still struggle with prayer. I mean, I can recite the Lord's Prayer and say grace and uh, knock off some of our prayers when it's convenient, but actually, sort of true prayer, you know the true prayer when you go into, um, it says, go into your closet and pray to your Father, that type of true prayer, I still find quite difficult. So I'm going to ask you the same thing. How are you doing in your prayer life? Um, how are we doing as a church? Are there times where it's a bit like me, where I go into my closet or in my bedroom to pray, sit down to pray, and then a minute later, my mind is all over the place onto other things. Sometimes I give up, and sometimes, you know, maybe I don't pray. Maybe I go, I go for time without prayer. So maybe, like me, you want to go back to the basics. Maybe you want to go back to the master prayer, back to Jesus and ask him, you know, Lord, teach us to pray. Okay, so the first word that Jesus says in Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer is Father. Yeah. Now, this was actually a loaded question for Jesus to say, and it would be one which would get Jesus in trouble. But by saying Jesus, but by saying Father, Jesus was actually revealing who he was. He was revealing that he was the Son of God. Now, the scriptures reveal that um, God, the Godhead, the Trinity, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that the Father loved the Son from all eternity, and the Son loved the Father from all eternity. Um, and Jesus had this perfect relationship with the Father when he was on earth, and he was the first. He was actually the first person to address God as Father. Although the, um, the Jews, they would have had some understanding of God as Father, he was the first one to address God as the Father. And the disciples, you know, watching him go off and praying in these, in these solitary places, they would have just been intrigued as to what this relationship he had with the Father was. Um, now, in Matthew's version, there's a small but significant word in front of Father, and that is our. Okay, by so, so by saying our, Jesus is actually inviting the disciples, as he is inviting you and me to know God as Father as well. And as Christians, knowing God as Father is our special privilege. And this um, differentiates us from other other religions from Judaism and Islam, is that we can actually call God Father and know him as Father because he adopts us um, as his children. And now, there's various ways we can look at God as Father. So the first one, okay, is that he's actually designed us, he's formed us, and he knows us. In that sense, he is our Father. Um, so Stephen Hawkins, I've got a quote from Stephen Hawkins. Stephen Hawkins is a mathematics professor, as well as a whole bunch of other things at Cambridge University. He, he writes this, he writes, We are all insignificant creatures on a minor planet, on an average star, in the outer suburbs of one of a hundred thousand million galaxies. It is difficult to believe in a God that would care about us 
or even notice our existence. Yet the Bible, the Bible actually acknowledges our smallness in comparison with the vastness of the universe. But it comes up, you know, it draws a very, very different conclusion. And I'm going to read some of my favourite psalms now. So Psalm 8 just highlights from various psalms. So Psalm 8 states this, it says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic you are in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Furthermore, in Psalm 139, it reveals not just a caring and intimate knowledge of each individual human being, but also, you know, in our formation and in our current lives, an intimate knowledge of that. It says, For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, Lord. And I don't know anyone who knows me as well as that. Yeah? So when I was growing up, my mum and dad did not know me as well as that. I don't even know myself as well as that. That's a bit of a cliche, but I don't know myself as well as God knows me. But the New Testament goes a lot further than even this. Not only has God designed us, formed us, and knows us, but he also adopts us as his very own children, and he loves us continually and unconditionally. So it's clear in the New Testament that once we were not children of God, we were not children of God, and then God does something, God takes the initiative, and he then comes and adopts us. And it actually says that we were once alienated from God because of our sinful nature, that we are by nature objects of wrath, and that is not us who found God, but it is that God who came and chose us and adopts us despite all our failings. So Ephesians 2 says, Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And Ephesians 1.4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Wonderful thing about this adoption is that it's not dependent on me. Yeah, it's not dependent on my performance, my ability to do good works or the right kind of good works. It's not, you know, dependent on my ability to keep a clean clean slate and not mess up in certain sins. You know, this is one of the most liberating truths of the gospel. I find, you know, even before we had breathed, even before we were knitted together in our mother's womb, yeah. God chose us through his foresight. He chose us to be sons and daughters of him. More than this, um, Colossians 3.3 3 says, your life is now hidden in Christ in God. Okay, so that means that when we come to God in prayer and worship, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus' perfect, spotless um, record, and we are hidden with him. So when we, co- we are clothed with him, so when we come to God, he sees us with all our quirks, but he sees us spotless son of Jesus, whom he has loved since all eternity. And again, the scriptures help, scriptures help us with this. So 1 John 3, 1 and 2 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we may be called children of God. And that is what we are. 
Romans 8, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you a slave again so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we cry, Abba, Father. And Abba, Father, meaning like an intimate expression akin to saying, Daddy. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question. How much do you know this? How much do you know this in your thoughts when you come to pray and worship? How much do you know this in your heart? How much have you experienced this? Jerry Packer wrote a book, um, which I read a few years ago, called Knowing God. It's a fantastic book, very, very meaty, definitely worth getting. And he says in this, if you want to know how much a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Yeah. So what we believe about God is important. Yeah. We need to know when we come to him in prayer and worship, we need to know our right standing before God in the first place, and this is really our basis of prayer, but so is our knowledge of who God is. Yeah? Generally speaking, when we, when, we, when we talk to people, and what we, what we know about a person affects how we relate to them. So um, ha- what I think about my parents, what I know about my parents affects how I relate to them. Um, same with my boss at work. What I think about her you know, affects how I speak and relate to her. When you meet someone you admire, yeah, you, you relate to them differently, you speak to them differently compared to just, just someone who, who you don't admire or a complete stranger. So we need to know about our God who we pray to. We need to know about this Father who has adopted us and who the Father is who has made us his children. Um, so knowing God, when you spend time with people, you know them better. Time with people, you know them better. Same with God. So as you read your Bible, as you pray, as you spend time in the gospel community, hearing what other people say about him, you will know him better. And you can even pray for yourself to know him better as well. So um, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus, and he he prays this prayer. He says, I keep asking that God uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, will give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. We can know him better through prayer, through asking to know him better. We can know him better. Um, but also through reading his word. And there's a few things um, about our father, which uh, I want to talk about. Okay, It's not an exhaustive list. I could go on forever and ever. But um, I just chose a few things which I, I want to say. So the first one is we've got a father who is in heaven. Okay, A father in heaven. And this, this might be an obvious point, but it's actually a father in heaven who is different to your earthly father. Okay, regardless of whether you know you knew your earthly father or not, but I'm kind of thinking parenthood here, so mothers and fathers, and I just want you to think about you know the greatest parenting you've had, yeah, or the greatest parenting you've seen or you've done or you wished you had, the greatest moments, the greatest memories you've had, uh, looking back and thinking, yeah, my father and mother did, you know. It's so well there. The greatest things, and they multiply it tenfold, a hundredfold, and you don't even come close. You don't even come close to your father in heaven. Your father in heaven is different from your earthly father. Okay. Second one is a father who loves. Now, God is love. So the Bible says God is love. And this is not kind of some abstract thing. 
So I had the privilege of growing up in a, in a family where mum and dad loved each other. And we knew mum and dad loved each other just in the way they related, that they gave themselves to one another continually, giving themselves to one another, sacrificing each, um, themselves for one another. Okay, And the same, it's the same with God. And so we know that um, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And since all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been giving themselves to each other, receiving life and joy from one another in perfect unity and communion. Now that you are in the Son, now that you are adopted and you're hidden in Christ, you can know this love as well. We've got a Father who delights. A Father who delights. And... It's important for parents to communicate with words their love for their children. And God does this to Jesus. And God does this for us as well. God the Father does this for us as well. When Jesus started his ministry, even before he had done anything noteworthy, he was baptised. John the Baptist baptised him. Okay, And it says, when, when Jesus came up out of the water, it says, the heavens opened and what looked like a dove descended from heaven And the words from heaven, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased, was spoken over Jesus. And he speaks that over you as well. This is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love, with them I am well pleased. He is a father who delights. He is a father who guides. As children of God, we have the privilege of knowing a God who does guidance. He does guide us. And who better to guide you than someone who knows you and loves you, forms you, knows how you've been put together. We've got a father who disciplines us. So, um, discipline, perhaps you might not like this one, uh, but Hebrews 12 is brilliant on this, and I recommend you read it in your own time. And it says that actually through discipline, God is treating us as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? So I can tell, I'm a teacher, and I can tell you what children are not disciplined at home. It's very obvious in the classroom. And on a serious note, actually, it's those children who you know, struggle the most at school and those children who, who might grow up and, and not be as happy as other children. So discipline is important, and we know discipline is a good thing. But perhaps you don't like the thought of being treated as a child. But when Jesus says we need to become like little children to receive the kingdom of heaven, it's more of a position you take under God. It's not being childish or not acting like an adult. It's more a position, it's more of like a posture thing, that you're coming um, under God and receiving things from him as a child. Hebrews 12 goes on and he tells us that God actually disciplines us through our hardships. When I look back on my life, and many people say this, it's actually through the hard things that happen, the things which you want to happen, which don't happen, you know, the setbacks, the pains. It's actually through those times where, you know, people have grown most in God. Um, And the key is looking to God in those moments, blaming God, but actually looking to God in those moments, realising that he is close by, discerning what he wants you to do, discerning what he wants to do in you as well. And people who make the most of these situations, i.e. they turn to God and come, they often come out stronger, they often come out with a renewed focus, they usually know God better through the whole process. We have a father with authority. Again, not sure what you think about this one, but authority in the right hands is a good thing. Again, I'm going to use a teacher example. If I didn't have authority in my classroom, People didn't do what I said. If, you know, if I didn't have that authority, 
you know, I can tell you what happened. What would happen is that those people with the loudest voices, those people who complain the loudest, those people with the strongest personalities, they'd be the ones who would rise up and sort of control and boss the others around. So authority is a good thing, and authority in the right hands is good. And what better than someone like our good, good father to have authority in this world? And then we've got a glorious and holy father. And this is a bit of a paradox, really, because on the one hand, we're saying that God is holy, which means other, which means set apart, and we're also saying God is father, which means close, which means close by. It's a bit of a paradox, you might think. But the Bible, but we need to hold these together, and the Hebrews does this really well. Um, Throughout the Bible, um, we have instances of God's holiness, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Okay. A few instances from the Old Testament, we have you know, obviously Moses and the burning bush, but also Isaiah, who's working in the temple. He's already a prophet of God. He's working in the temple, and then God floods the temple and smoke fills the temple. He comes face to face with the holiness of God. And his response is, woe to me, for I am ruined, and I am unclean, and I am a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst people with unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. This is why the disciples wouldn't have called God Father. You know, Jesus was the first one to call God Father, but the disciples wouldn't have dared to sort of address God as Father. But then Jesus comes along. And Hebrews is fantastic in uniting both the holiness of God and the closeness of God. So Hebrews 10 says, um, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near to God. And Hebrews 4, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. He is a holy God. He is a good God. And he is your Father. So moving on to hallowed be your name. Okay. Hallowed be your name. So Glenn Scrivener, he's, um, he's a guy, he's actually preached here once before, and I think he writes the three to one course, which um, some of you have done. Um, he gave me a little bit of help with this, um, not personally, but I just read some of his stuff. Um, he says this, he says, what we love rules our hearts. What we look up to determines our lives. What we value controls our every decision, and what we hallow is a matter of life or death. Quite strong words. Now, hollow is not a word which we use these days. We commonly use these days. Um, I think I've only really come across it when um, people are referring to sporting events, sporting stadiums. So I think I've heard, you know, the hollowed um, turf of Wembley or the hollowed turf of Old Trafford. But just to put it simply, hollow means to, to value something, to worship something. Um, simply means to worship something, to love and adore something with all your being, with all your heart and mind, with all your being. Um, And the phrase, hallowed be your name, again reminds us of the object of our worship as well, which is the name of God. And by name of God, we mean everything God um, has revealed himself to be. So, is God the name that you hallow? Or is is it God that you worship and love and adore above all other things? Um, David Foster Wallace is an American novelist and a lecturer. Um, he's not a Christian. Um, I don't know what his um, religious belief is, if he has anything. But he says this at one of his um, famous um, speeches. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. 
An outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spirit thing to worship is that everything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap and find real meaning in life, you will feel you never have enough. If you worship your own body and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. If you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will always end up feeling stupid. A fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Try to think of a few things which maybe Cheltonians might um, struggle with in terms of their worship. So um, perhaps you worship um, your own abilities or your own sort of self-efficiency. So your own ability to sort your life and do your life and make a success of your life. Um, This is where I struggle, actually. So, you know, it results in sometimes not praying. So go off to work, go off to a meeting, you know, and don't pray about it because I think, you know, got discovered can sort this out. Maybe maybe it's your comfort, which you worship, and your whole life is geared up just to having a nice, comfortable existence. And so when something happens which disturbs that comfort, you can't really cope, or you, know, you just get um, angry and moody. Or maybe you just don't say yes to things. You don't say yes to anything which will take you out of your comfort zone, which will inconvenience you in, in the slightest manner. Perhaps it's the approval of other people, you know. So, so you worship other people because you you care more about what they think of you than you do about God. Maybe it's pleasures. Maybe it's sex. Yeah. So, sex is you know something which is worshipped in our culture. When I was um, about sixteen or seventeen, I was part of a friendship group, and sex was what was worshipped. And I was thinking of um, one friend in particular, and he was the most outspoken. You know, he gave me the hardest time when I piped up and said, well, actually, you know, I'm Christian, I'm going to wait till I'm married. I'm serious about that. He, you know, he's the one who gave me the hardest time. Um, a few of the things which happened with him, so, I mean, he had a girlfriend who he loved, but he decided to dump her. And he said to her, you know, I'm going to finish with you because I want to sleep with other people. That's what he did. And then when he tried to get her back, she told him to forget it. Um, he, he got fired from a job for looking at things he ought not to look at on company computers. Um, his ambition, he's a bright guy. He's a bright guy, so he's in top sets. Um, I remember driving back with my dad from town and seeing him walking into town, and he was just walking along, just reading a book. Very sort of bookish. A lot going for him, but his ambition just you know, disappeared. And he got to a point where we were always sort of talking about, you know, what we're going to do next year. We just finished school. He said, yeah, we're going off to university. Someone else is going to drama school. And he said, no, I want to go to America. And he goes, great, what are you doing? And he goes, I just want to sleep, sleep with 10 people in America. In, in America. And, you know, you know he, he was passionate. He was a passionate worshipper. But he was completely worshipping in the wrong direction. And I met up with him, still friends, met up with him back in Easter when I visited his home. And, you know, he's living back with his parents. His life hasn't gone well. He's a bit of a shell of a man. And really, you know, as David Foster Wallace says, you know, he was worshipping, but what he worshipped has ruined his life. 
as we're in this life. So I want to ask the question, what might it be for you? And we need to ask ourselves our questions, really, because it might not be obvious for you. Yeah. So some forms of worship, such as you know, such as the comfort, such as the people pleasing, you might not do this consciously. They're they're kind of unconscious. Yeah. Um, they're the kind of the default settings of your life. Yeah. Um, Jesus knew this. So Jesus says, he commands us. He goes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Yeah. It's kind of like a directing of your own heart towards what is good, towards what is right, towards what is of value, and that is God. Because you know, if you're not directing your own heart, consciously or unconsciously, it will go after other things. So you might not be actively pursuing worship, but because you're not hallowing the name of God, because you're not chasing after him, you return to your default setting. And that might be comfort, that might be people-pleasing. That's why it's at the start of the prayer. You know, we've got to look at the Father, look at who he is, look at our relationship with him and our standing before him, and then we need to hallow his name. We need to worship him. Before we pray for anything else, before we pray for the world, we've got to get our worship right. Okay. So as part of our response, um, we'll be breaking bread, and this is really a time to remember what Jesus has done in terms of dying on the cross for our sins. Now, Jesus had an ongoing relationship with the Father. Although it was a privilege for him, something which he had known since eternity, it also represented a huge personal challenge for him. Jesus knew he had a relationship with the Father, and Jesus knew that he had to go to the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes back to the Father, and he says these words, and he's got great anguish in his soul, and he prays these words. He goes, my Father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, and after three days, cancelled our sin. And the beauty and the mystery of our salvation is that, you know, he rises, and we're joined in with Jesus when he rises to the Father. And our lives are now hidden with him, so that when God looks upon us, he sees Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son whom he loves. And that means that we can have freedom, we have access, and we can know the Father as he knows the Father. But just as being a son of God had a challenge for Jesus, so us knowing the Father also has implications for our life as well. The deal is you can't actually pray our Father in heaven without also praying, hallowed be your name. You can't separate the two. Jesus couldn't separate the two. He knew he had to go to the cross. He couldn't enjoy the privileges of being the son and not live as the father wanted him, which was for him to go to the cross. Same with you. You can't enjoy the privileges of being a child of God and not say and not worship his glorious name. Okay. In a moment, we're going to respond. Okay, I want us to respond in two ways. Um, the first one is... is, is the whole area of adoption. Okay, I want to tell you a story, first of all, from my own life. So this happened a few years ago before, before I came to Cheltenham. Um, now, my sister doesn't describe herself as a Christian. She's not a Christian. And a while ago, a few things happened in her life, which meant for a period of time, she was um, very down, struggling with quite a few things, um, quite depressed. Um, now, I remember talking to her on the phone one night, 
And there was nothing I could say which would lift her spirits. Nothing I could do which, you know, would make things any better. And she was just kind of wallowing, sort of, you know, in this state. And understandably so. Um, so the next morning, I didn't, well, I didn't know what to do, but the next morning before I went to work in my bedroom, I prayed for her. And I don't, can't quite remember what I was praying, but it was something along the lines of, Father, come get her. Father, come adopt her. Father, make her your own. That type of prayer, sort of really calling out to God uh, for my sister. Now, that night, it was a home group night. That night, we went to home group, and at the end, you know, you split off into your groups and you pray. So the prayer was with a, a small group of lads, and you, you say what you pray. It's my turn. I say what I want prayer for. I didn't mention Anna, although I had mentioned her a few months before. And then one of my friends, before we start praying, one of my friends says, you know, Stan, I just feel God talk to me about your sister. He goes, you've been praying for her. And then he says, the answer is coming soon. That's what he says. And then we get on with our prayer. And so I have like a, a jaw-dropping moment at that stage. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still praying for that to happen, still waiting for that answer. But what I learned is that, you know, when you go, if you're a Christian here, when you go into your closet or when you go into your bedroom and you pray to your father, he's there. He's right there with you. The things that you care about are important to him. He listens, he hears, and he responds. And that's the father you have in heaven. Also what I learned is, you know, as with my sister, if you're not here, you don't really know God as father, you've never experienced God as father. God wants to adopt. God does want to adopt. And he's there, his arms are open, and he wants to adopt you. The other way I'd like us to respond is, you know, perhaps your, your prayer life is dwindling. There's not much power. There's not much passion in your prayer. It's a bit of a struggle. I'd admit to this. It's a bit of a struggle for me sometimes. But, you know, maybe it's a worship issue in your life. Maybe it's a worship issue. Maybe, maybe you're not worship, you know, not consciously going after other things and worshiping that with all your might. Maybe it's just a, you're not worshiping the Father. You're not worshiping the Father with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your heart. And so you've kind of gone back to your default settings, to your default settings. And if that is you, if you feel that is you, you know, you can use Paul's prayer, which I mentioned earlier. You can pray for yourself or you can get someone else to pray for you. You know, it's keep asking God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he will give you spirit or wisdom and revelation that you may know him better. You can pray that. And we're going to have some worship in a bit. Turn once again and worship your Father. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.